everyone, and welcome to today's uh, bi-weekly coronavirus update from Invest Africa. My name is Alex Woods. I'm the Events and Partnerships Manager here. Um, so glad so many of you were able to join us today. Um, this is a uh, ongoing sort of strengthening of our digital uh, insights program, and do keep an eye out on the Invest Africa website for any more. Um, today we're going to be talking on coronavirus um, and Africa and the slowing global growth. Um, I'm lucky enough to be joined by three of our members, Francois Conradi, the Senior Political Economist from NKC African Economics, Charles Robertson, who's the Global Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy Unit at Renaissance Capital, and Peter Gray, the Co-Managing Partner at Aldabashi Gray. Um, before we launch into uh, the, sort of, um, the, the general conversation, um, Francois, I was just wondering whether I could sort of turn to you to give us a sort of a macro overview of where we stand in Africa on um, on the coronavirus in terms of um, the uh, any new developments and the infection rates across the continent. Um, yes, thanks, Alex. Uh, yeah, so um, using the John Ho Johns Hopkins University data, as of midnight, we had uh, 5,169 active cases in Africa. So um, I've been tending to focus on the, Africa, uh, the active cases, which is the confirmed cases, less recovered um, cases and deaths, um, so that hopefully you can then um, quickly get a sense of when the curve is flattening and, and the incidence is declining. Um, that is more or less comparable to the numbers in Brazil or Australia. Um, the most active cases as of today are in South Africa with 1,300 about. Um, and then the other badly affected countries are the North, North African ones. Um, Egypt, Algeria is the second most, 626. Uh, Morocco, 557. Then Egypt with 507. Uh, and Tunisia with 381. Um, and then after those countries, uh, somewhat oddly could think is uh, Burkina Faso has got over 200 cases, which is much more than Nigeria, Ghana, or Cote d'Ivoire. Um, the fatality picture looks quite different. Um, the, using the naive um, fatality rates where you just look at deaths over active cases, um, it's much deadlier in North Africa than it has been so far in South Africa. Um, this, you know, so these are the kind of things that are going to, the reasons for that are going to become clearer over time. Obviously, the, the testing protocols are very different, as are the protocols for reporting fatality. You know, there are countries where typically if you, if you die from um, conditions related to coronavirus, it's pneumonia. Now, in some countries, they write it as pneumonia, and in other cases, they um, they write it down as, as coronavirus. So I think um, it's, it's hard to compare exactly what's going on, but it is certain that far more fatalities in North Africa have been reported uh, than in South Africa. Um, but the, the infections in North Africa came a lot earlier. So Egypt reported its first case in the middle of February already. Uh, whereas South Africa was um, 20 days later. Um, recent developments that are notable are that yesterday Burundi and Sierra Leone um, announced their first confirmed cases. For now, we've still got five countries that haven't confirmed a case, but that might be uh, because of lack of testing capacity. Um, and then uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa in South Africa announced a, a rollout of testing uh, on Monday evening. Um, and then, so so, ten thousand field workers are going to be going around South Africa testing people. So that, that's also a reason to expect uh, the incidence to to increase. Brilliant, Francois. Thank you so much for that update. I mean, obviously, uh, as things change, we'll keep on up updating our members accordingly, and do keep an eye out on the IA Insights page for any sort of new um, research pieces from our members. Um, just before we sort of launch into the main conversation. Um, just for everyone's attention, there will be a recording of this uh, session being made available, um, and I, that will be sent out to all attendees as soon as it's uh, finalized. Also, there is the option for Q&A throughout this. Um, we're going to try and build in as much as possible. Um, there, there should be the um, option for uh, questions, so do put in your questions, and we'll get round to those um, as soon as possible. So I really want to start on uh, sort of from an economic perspective. Um, a lot of um, a lot of research has gone into, and a lot of comparisons are being made uh, between the 2008 um, financial crisis and this one. Um, whereas um, 
my question to you, Charles, first of all, uh, is on this. So, you know, during the 2008 crash, um, African economies continued to grow um, in certain aspects. Um, do you think uh, there's any chance of this for um, African markets? And what are the what are the differences uh, between uh, this sort of global slump and the um, the crash in 2008? Hi. Um, the the problem well, it's a complete nightmare to forecast any of this. Um, so I'm going to be very very sparse with giving proper numbers or proper forecasts for anything. Um, I'm afraid, but. The reason it's so difficult is because I I don't remember seeing a service-led global recession like this. Um, Unemployment numbers tend to be still rising even after the economies have begun to recover in a normal recession in in developed markets. Um, But this one, we're seeing unemployment spike right at the very beginning as millions lose their jobs in the States in a a single week um, and half a million or so in Germany and the UK. So this is a very different sort of a recession from ones that we've seen before. And that means that these historical analogies aren't, they might not work. Um, I have to admit, I was also looking back at the 2008-9 story. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. But what we've also got to add in is that we've got a whole 2015-16 story at the same time. So, that, so 2008-9, because China reflated so quickly, oil prices bounced back extremely quickly up to high levels and countries like Angola and Nigeria um, still look pretty good um, one to two years after that crisis but we're adding in this oil price war so so we're also getting the the, the negative story from that um, and that means your Nigerias and Angolas are looking in a much more uh, tough spot taking all of that together what can we say uh, we can say that agriculture plays a much bigger role in African economies than it does most countries around the world. Um, and as a result, that that shouldn't change too much. Um, whether you're in subsistence agriculture or perhaps just trading with a local town, if 25% of your GDP is coming from agriculture, there's no reason for that to get hit significantly by this crisis. And that gives some resilience. Um, we don't have the supply chain complexity, which is going to be interrupted in ways that are actually impossible to forecast properly uh, for uh, the more developed economies. Um, and a number of the more, uh, if you're exporting tea or coffee like Kenya or Ethiopia, you know, this isn't stuff that people are going to drink less of in lockdown. Um, there's no obvious reason for them uh, to be hit so badly on that side either. So you've got exports perhaps doing fairly well in some countries or re- as, as the same, and at the same time, you've also got um, an agricultural dependency, which helps too. So c- could Africa have it easier? Could we see better GDP figures um, out of African countries over this year versus Western countries? I think certainly yes. I think Ghana did an aggressive cut uh, with its uh, the other day from six to about one and a half for its growth forecast for this year. Um, but I don't think, you know, I think most people would be delighted with one and a half if they could get that in Europe or the States. Um, and they're not going to. Um, so Africa's going to get hit. Um, the hit is different from 08, 09, because it's also a commodity hit from this oil price war. Um, but we could still see some countries producing small positive growth rates. Thank you for that. I think um, you touched on a number of points I think we need to unpack further. Um, firstly, uh, the oil and gas uh, crisis. Um, I think with all of these conversations, uh, uh, Obviously, the the focus will be on Africa, but it's important to address uh, the situation globally. You know, the face-off between sort of Saudi Arabia and Russia um, seemingly will have huge consequences for Africa. We've we've seen in the last week uh, the Nigerian Petroleum uh, Regulator sort of ordering oil and gas companies in the uh, in the country to reduce offshore workers. Um, Francois, I, I don't know whether you can unpack some of what uh, Charles has said, as sort of what the impact. Uh, for African markets that that are dependent on oil and gas, like Nigeria, Angola, um, and even Mozambique, what the impacts will be here? Uh, yeah, well, catastrophic. I mean, the um, the, the oil price is now at um, twenty eight dollars um, for Brent. I mean, there, there are a lot of um, so the, the 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 initial shock that was the first thing that we worried about um, when looking at, especially Angola and Nigeria. 
um, was already going to be devastating. They had to export um, the current account balance and then on reserves and um, the ability for the for the banking sector to function normally um, in when it comes to um, exchanging nairas for for hard currency. Um, that was already become apparent early on that that was going to be hit. Um, and then every day seems to bring news that makes it seem that that's going to be even worse. So the oil price keeps going down. Um, the Saudis seem very determined to ride this thing out um, to its conclusion. You know, they want to ramp up production even further and try and wipe out all the competition. Um, at the same time, as you say, operations are going to be suspended. So even the producers who could still um, sell into this market are going to find their operations constrained. Um, then there's uh, the actual lockdown that's that's going to be that has been announced in um, Abuja and Lagos and yeah. oh, sorry. Um, that's going to have an impact on on uh, the consumption side of the economy. So it's going to be a terrible year. Um, oh, and then uh, and I haven't even mentioned government finances. Obviously, the, the these uh, oil rates were what financed the governments in Nigeria and Angola massively dependent on that. Um, so now suddenly they're finding themselves um, in an extremely squeezed position. Um, so uh, those are countries that are going to be at a higher risk of, of debt distress, which is something that I expect we're going to say more about. Um, so yeah, catastrophic is the only word you can you can use. But just on the agriculture, though, Charlie, I, I'm, I mean, I, we're also taking the view that generally um, the, the countries that are more dependent on agriculture are going to be better off. Uh, but there is going to be a hit um, especially through exports of um, you know countries that export a lot into Europe uh, where where demand is, has shrunk considerably because of people being um, constrained in their movements and, and consumption falling there um, that's already um, just well maybe anecdotal but I mean the, the, the Kenya's flower exports have essentially collapsed because of no one's buying flowers in developed countries um, and in South Africa I think you're going to see um, a lot of the as consumption gets constrained from people having less money to spend, um, a lot of uh, some of that is going to come through demand for food. Um, so there is going to be a bit of a hit to to farmers, um, uh, maybe less than the services sector certainly, but there is going to be a hit. Peter, I want to bring you in here. Um, Aldabashi being based out in the UAE, I don't know whether you have any perspective um, from a from a, a sort of um, a Middle Eastern point of view on the impacts here, and whether you've seen any sort of of these consequences um, initially, particularly around the sort of oil and gas, given the the geography you you work in. Yes, well, thanks. Um, I mean, I suppose that uh, Saudi, I mean, from an oil and gas perspective, Saudi knows it can ride it out because it's so cheap for them to get it out of the ground. And Abu Dhabi um, isn't far behind. So um, whilst their numbers are going to be hit because obviously the, the price has gone down so much, um, it, it was it was obviously it, it, it's a it's a man-made the oil price is partly a man-made issue because obviously it boils down to this 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 scrap with Russia. Um, we've I've been in the Gulf for over, for over ten years now, and you know we've seen with. From this point of view, we've seen it before. The price has gone has um, gone up and down thanks to you know a whole array of reasons. I suppose the the, the broader comment I'd make is that um, you know obviously oil producers, particularly those outside those two countries, are and and other sort of cheap Gulf countries where it's cheap to get it out the ground. They are obviously badly affected, and you can see um, you know it, it, it's it's bad news for them. I suppose, on the other hand, the only comment I'd throw in um, on the Africa side is that uh, there are many countries which import only. Um, that's a huge uh, issue for the balance of payments. And so for them, that that will hopefully make things a bit easier. Um, you know, you, we, usually with these things, there's whoever whoever's suffering, there's always someone benefiting. And um, there are a number of countries which I think will, will welcome this, although whether that offsets all the other damage they're suffering um, is an open question. Thank you, um, Peter, for that. Um, Francois, you mentioned um, before um, questions around um, sort of uh, police brutality, civil unrest. Um, I just wanted, obviously, we're we're sort of we focus here on uh, Kenya and uh, South Africa for the moment, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on whether um, you know we could see that um, that unrest sort of um, spreading across the continent, or do you think it's uh, very market specific. 
Well, we haven't seen that much unrest, um, perhaps we should say yet, um, but uh, the, the, in Kenya and South Africa, what there has been so far is instances of police um, using excessive force in imposing um, the lockdowns. Um, and, uh, you know, in South Africa, there were already been two deaths in Kenya. A teenage boy died yesterday uh, after being shot. Um, and that has a very uh, big uh, effect on, on um, the, the public opinion uh, and how people relate to their governments. Um, so in South Africa, the, uh, I mean, public opinion is obviously pretty horrified at, at um, this is the first time we've had soldiers in the streets um, since democracy. So this is... Uh, People are very vocal in calling on government to respect um, civil liberties. And that's something that you um going to see in, in other countries, maybe in Southern Africa, that also have lockdowns. Uh, the picture is going to be different in places where uh, there's more of a history of, of um, abuses by security forces. Um, but it's also, you can see how people are very careful of governments using um the coronavirus as a pretext to to curb civil liberties um and that's i think the the extent of that is going to differ from from place to place so now ethiopia for instance they they've uh, postponed their elections that were going to be held in august um and and the opposition has been fine with it uh whereas in other places they might not have been but i think um you know what what we're looking for is places like uh gabon and Cote d'Ivoire and Guinea, um, where governments are, are trying to, or prisoners are trying to stay in power or are sort of trying to um, engineer election results in their direction, they, you're definitely going to see um, health reasons being used as a pretext. Algeria is another one where um, the government is all too happy to be able to ban um, public gatherings because they had seen um, Friday protests for a year. So that's... Uh, an interesting thing that's going to, um, I think, change maybe um, complacent attitudes to governments in maybe South Africa, uh, and could once the the health risks have subsided, um, actually drive protests in, in other countries in West Africa and North Africa. Brilliant, thank you. You you answered my question. It was going to be on elections and whether you think. Uh, yeah, how the crisis will affect some of those upcoming sort of head of state elections we, we see across the continent. Um, I think we'll open up uh, to the floor now for some Q&A. We've had a number of questions. Um, one uh, which um, I'm sure that all of you could speak to, and perhaps we can hear from Charles first and then move on to the others, is um, from our friends at um, um, members of Invest Africa 4G Capital. So um, you see a huge amount of the African economy made up of sort of the informal sector, um, who undoubtedly will not be covered um, by sort of some of the contingency measures put in place by by governments. Um, how or yeah, how I suppose the question being, how do you uh, perceive the sort of future for that for that informal sector across the continent? Um, playing out uh, in light of COVID-19? Um, in the medium term, I just don't... Uh, well, there's a, there's a short-term and a medium-term issue. I mean, the short-term issue here is that I think governments are going to badly need a lot of financial support um, to to be able to inject into the whole economy. It's very hard, impossible to work out how you can specifically support the informal economy. People are going to have to go back to their family networks, and and uh, but you know, that, that's that's how they'll manage. But what I think is particularly relevant here is that you can inject money into the economy at roughly zero percent interest rates if you're a developed market right now. Um, but we've seen dollar borrowing costs for so many African countries shoot up. Yeah, and South African local currency borrowing costs shoot up recently until the Saab started buying bonds. So this is actually making it even tougher uh, for governments. So uh, my, my question is, how on earth can governments do a lockdown? And a lockdown seems to be the only way to stop the virus, unless you're uh, an East Asian country with extremely high levels of state capacity. You need a lockdown, but how can countries afford to lock down, given, given the costs to the formal as well as the informal sectors? Um, and that, I think, then requires a G7 response, where they're offering money at cost because the US 
1% to borrow for 10 years, lend it to countries across Africa and frontier elsewhere, other emerging markets too, um, to make sure that they can afford the lockdown, which gets this virus under control globally. Um, which isn't really, I've slightly gone away from your initial question about how to support the informal sector. I just don't know. Um, but I do think it's, it's vital that financial support gets offered. I don't know whether anyone of our other panellists um, can, can wade in on this. Um, Peter, perhaps? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, it's a very difficult, African governments find themselves in a very difficult position at the minute, I think, because aside from the richer ones, they just, obviously, they don't have the money to deal with this. And I wonder if perhaps they're going to have to make harder choices about whether they continue that lockdown for very long. Because there is no, you know, this is happening now. This is something that's going to happen in six months when you can get things in place. In, in say, a week or two's time when people have run out of money, are they going to obey a lockdown? Probably not. And then you risk a real problem because, you know, you compare it with what's happening in Europe. People are obeying the lockdown because it's the, they agree with the state's position. The state has basically said, we're going to, um, you stay at home and we're going to give you state support for your salaries. We're going to, you know, do all these different things which we can do because we can borrow, we've got the money, we've got the infrastructure, we've got the supply chains. So people are doing it and that's why it's going to work. They're doing it because they're, they're it's really about intensive beds, intensive care beds, because um, you know there isn't a cure, and basically everyone's going to get it at some point, or a lot of people are going to get it at some point, given there's no uh, vaccine on the market. And so, you know, you wonder if Africa doesn't have the intensive care beds anyway. So, you know, what are they doing it for? Because it's about slowing it, not stopping people getting it. Because if you take, if the minute you re reduce restrictions. Um, more people are going to get the virus, everyone knows that, but it's, it's a question of slowing it. For in, in the West, for intensive care beds that are available or, or becoming available, that option isn't open. So my view is that they've got some hard choices to make very quickly about whether they did the right thing. I mean, not everybody has locked down. I think Sweden famously hasn't. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, yes, that will, there'll be other consequences of that. Those consequences of not locking down may actually turn out to be less bad than uh, trying to trying to stop millions and millions of people who've got no other way of supporting themselves from doing so. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I want to move on now just because we've got a few questions to try and get through. Um, uh, one I've been sent, so I think it sort of leads on from that question around civil unrest, looking particularly at Mozambique. Uh, and, you know, we've seen a lot of civil unrest, particularly in the north around the Anadarko oil fields. Um, uh, a question for the panellists. Um, I don't know whether, Francois, you'd like to take this as sort of how you see the sort of COVID-19 situation impacting uh, the country. Um, okay, well, well for, uh, for now, Mozambique is, is um, barely affected. So we've got eight, eight active cases in Mozambique um, as, of, as of midnight, uh, which really isn't a lot. Um, and the, the, when you look at the map and you see the, the huge difference between uh, the north and the south and the center, so a lot of uh, a lot of active cases in South Africa and, and North Africa, and not so much in the rest of the con uh, continent. Um, then you know maybe the factors at play, like um, sort of that people just don't live um, more less urbanized societies. People aren't um, as close to each other, and, and maybe it doesn't communicate. Maybe there's a, a weather factor at play here. Um, that this it just isn't flu weather, and that's why the the virus isn't really spreading. Um, so for us, it's it's not Mozambique. We're very worried about Mozambique uh, from the government finances point of view. Um, but for now, it's not one of the places where we think the direct health effects of the virus are going to be very severe. Um, but yeah, the government finances are they're in debt distress already, and um, the the fact that oil prices and energy prices are so low uh, essentially means that all the investment in Cabo Delgado in the north uh, that that we were seeing as the main driver of growth of the next decade to two decades um, is is on hold uh, and that's where these um, the, that uh, Islamist insurgency is is um, spreading and growing more aggressive so that the it's it's been for a while you've heard these reports 
reports of villages being attacked. But now, you know, the, the two more recent attacks have been full-on military operations in which they take over a town. Um, last week, they took over the, the governor's residence in, in one major town. Um, it's a very worrying thing. That's that the, the whole, you know, if it doesn't, if the government can't um, mobilize to stop it, then that whole province is going to be um, under under control of, of these uh, groups. And at the same time, there's a, a, a split um, faction of Renamo has gone back into the bush and they've been attacking uh, traffic on the on the year one, the main uh, highway, North South Highway. So there's a definitely a degree of deterioration of, of states control of the territory in, in Mozambique, which is extremely worrying from a, from an investment point of view. Um, so I think that with everything that's going on, um, you know, it might be too soon or too much to to worry about the health effects of the virus itself. Brilliant. Thank you, Francois, for that. Um, I'm going to try and get through as many questions as possible. One for you, Charles, I think, um, is around, um, it's from our friends at uh, SMBC. So do you expect to start seeing sort of defaults by African sovereign borrowers as a result of low oil price and, and um, from the effects of COVID-19? It's what we're looking at right now. I think a lot of people are. Um, Zambia, it's not the oil price, there's copper, obviously, but they, they've you know, called in the, they've put out an RFP for advisory uh, banks to come and talk to them about how to manage their debt, um, which is either going to see those banks say, borrow some cheap money from the IMF and buy it all up really cheaply in the secondary market, or they're going to say, yeah, you need to restructure and default. Um, and they're certainly priced to that at the moment. Um, and you know, investors seem to be asking, you know, who is next? Is it going to be Angola? How long can Nigeria survive? What about Republic of Congo, uh, Gabon? So yes, there's a whole there's a whole host of countries um, that that are in a really tough position, um, and it's the work we're doing right now. I can't tell you which ones and what day, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, uh, thank you. Um, I think that sort of neatly sort of brings us on to one of my questions, um, and certainly is the sort of uh, from what I've read, there seems to be the major concern, you know, around that debt uh, question. So given the sort of the African finance ministers, we saw a letter um, written uh, for a um, $100 billion um, stimulus package. I don't know um, whether one of you can take this and sort of what form do you think this will take? You know, what are the uh, time periods on this? Um, and then potentially t touching on sort of... Um, the role of um, those multilaterals and, and DFIs um, for this uh, for this sort of debt relief. I mean, I'm happy to just start off by by pointing out that most most of the debt owed by most governments is unfortunately not owed to the multilaterals. Um, so, of that 100 billion, you can imagine a big chunk, and, and the ECA was also just suggesting the same thing a week ago. Um, a big chunk can come from you know, suspending interest payments, for example on the loans that you do owe uh, to foreign governments. Um, it'd be fantastic if China stepped up in a proactive and quick way, um, which, which they're not, they don't normally do. Uh, but it'd be fantastic to see them do that too and, and say, we'll give you extra grace period um, on, on repayment of the debt for one, two years. The sort of thing that you're seeing in household levels of, of mortgage payments, you don't have to make your mortgage payment for, for three months or six months in some European countries now. Um, you do eventually get pushed onto the end of the loan later, but you get a break when you need the break most. Um, so that seems to be uh, fairly straightforward um, and gives relief uh, quickly um, this year. Um, but I, I still think it's not just about your, your balance of payment support that the governments need. Um, I think there needs to be actual super cheap lending, ideally grants, but let's just call it lending at cost from, from Europe and the States, um, so that governments can actually cope with their revenue hit, which is going to be dramatic um, for, for the oil exporters for a start, um, and is bad enough for, for many other countries too. So, And they need that to be able to fund testing programs, uh, to be able to fund the people to go out and make sure that people are quarantined. Vietnam's done it. Vietnam's a low-income country. It succeeded well. Um, it is a high-capacity country in terms of government infrastructure. You know, One-party rule there for 50 years. That helps, 
when you when you've got high capacity. But still, even at low per capita GDP of about two and a half three thousand dollars, they've managed to contain the virus very well. So it can be done, uh, but it still requires financing, um, and that's where I think that money needs to to be going in part. Francois, I don't know whether you've got a take on this um, that that question around the debt um, uh, relief yeah. package. Yeah, so, so the, the point Charlie was just making about the fact that the most of this, most of Africa's debt currently isn't owed to multilaterals um, is an important one. And that's a, a big part of the difference between this crisis and the crisis of 2008-2009 is that, you know, in those days, it was governments talking to governments and there was a political angle to it. And, you know, the, the, the lenders were willing to make certain concessions in exchange for some trade advantages and so on. Uh, but now African governments owe money, especially now there's been a big, over recent years, there was this massive boom in Eurobond issuances. So now they owe money to investment banks and the investment banks have a very different approach to this. The only thing they care about is their, their money. Um, and that's going to make it difficult to, even if the IMF and the World Bank um, appear to be uh, willing to, to talk about these things, um, you know, there's a degree to which it's out of their hands. And um, private investors and the private investors want to get paid, um, and they are going to take it to court in in um, London and New York and so on, and, and insist on on getting paid. Uh, and it's also been noticeable that the U.S., um, you know, in its public statements, has been very firmly on the on the side of the banks, um, saying that no, this is this is debt and needs to be paid. Um, the role of China uh, can be interesting in that. Um, you know, they could come and, and lend and help out, but they're also going to want their uh, guarantees in the form of um, physical infrastructure, which is also a political problem because they often um, lend money against a piece of, of uh, physical infrastructure and then take it over. And um, at the moment, uh, and then that again becomes a, a geopolitical issue when um, Western governments see the Chinese take over key bits of infrastructure now it's this particularly relevant right now to discussions about uh the harbor at Djibouti uh, which is a key uh, access point for the Horn of Africa um and the the Chinese are I'm not exactly sure where that story is but there's a possibility that the Chinese could gain ownership of this this harbor um so that's one way in which it could play out but um yeah so I think there is going to be a, a, some leniency on the part of, of uh, Western lenders, um, especially the multilaterals, which is going to help and give us a bit of breathing space. Uh, but other lenders aren't going to be willing to to um, give much in the way of concessions right now. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Francois, you mentioned uh, the question around courts. Um, and uh, Peter, I want to bring you in here, I think, from a legal perspective. It's one that perhaps is not being uh, discussed at the moment, um, but it'd be interesting to hear your take on sort of the, the impact of coronavirus that, uh, that it will have on, on the law um, across multiple jurisdictions. You know, um, perhaps you could touch on that and sort of uh, the questions around that sort of force measure um, as well. Sure. Well, um, let me um, base it by just giving you a, a, a couple of seconds on what force majeure is, because it's widely misunderstood. In a, in a case, you know, where, where trade has come to a halt in a number of sectors, um, everybody is obviously saying, oh, well, this thing is a force majeure. And, um, and read the earlier topic, the same will be said about debt. We can't pay because um, something happened, which means we can't do it. In, in Eastern legal systems uh, and civil law systems, uh, typically force majeure is implied. And so if uh, people have obligations under Francophone African laws or under UAE or any, or any of these other systems, um, they will be able to say the contract was more difficult than they thought it would be and the, they, the courts may have sympathy. It does depend. A lot of people tried this in the 08 crash and it didn't work. But this is a very different situation um, factually because it is actually a, a thing that's happening rather than a a finance-led issue. Um, it, it is not implied in English law at all. So in English law, if you don't have a force majeure clause, there's no getting out of it. Um, and it's also that the, the force majeure tends to excuse you if performance is impossible. Um, 
or a lot more difficult, or, or sometimes if a lot more difficult. It does depend on what the clause says. So what we'll see here is um, potentially there's huge amounts of litigation, but typically in uh, these sort of world events, most people sort it out amongst themselves, and you tend to get a few key cases that go on for a while, um, and and uh, and then some follow-on. So 9/11 was a good example. Um, there was a lot of insurance claims in central New York. A lot of that got sorted out without litigation, but there was litigation on certain key issues. Um, and again, in 08, there was there was a whole load of litigation on certain areas, but everybody else sorted things out. And I think you'll see that with debt, for example, because if you've got a general loan, if you've just the government's issued a bond, um, it isn't impossible to pay it. It may be more difficult for you, but I think it's very unlikely that any loan um, which is uh, given to the gov a government generally will will excuse performance on that basis. Um, you, you'll get a whole load of other debts which I don't think will be affected. I mean, Krakow mentioned Djibouti. Um, you know, that port is going to still be busy. There's no reason why it couldn't service its, in, its obligations. Um, and one would expect that to be fairly unaffected because it's already uh, going, um, you know, it's already a hugely important and growing uh, artery. Um, where you're more likely to get the fights is, is on um, specific uh, projects where debt is specifically, say, for example, um, an energy related, you know, a, a specific project which has been affected by this generally. So, say you're lending money to a Kenyan flower business. Well, they might have a force majeure claim because, of course, they would say we can't, performance was impossible, therefore um, we should be excused or given a debt holiday. And force majeure is usually seen as something which is suspends obligations. It says you don't have to do, you can't penalise me for not doing it at, during this X period of time because I couldn't do it. Um, and so, you know, oil companies in Somalia have had force majeure famously running since the 90s on their on their um, on on their blocks that they've got that, that they have there. Um, in other cases um, where it's excusing performance at all, they tend to be fairly restrictive. So it's a big question, um, but one which I would hope that most people will try and because it's genuinely a global pandemic, um, it's one one hopes people are sensible about. But of course, there's always people who want to take advantage or have to take advantage, and they will be fighting. And I'll just give you a, um, one anecdote from past ones, which caused a lot of the sewage crisis, because during that you had shipping contracts where people would, you know, charter, pay a pay a shipping company to move their goods, say from China to Europe. It was going to go through the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal was blocked because ships were sunk in there, and and, and so they had to go right round um, uh, the Cape. And as a result, it's significantly more expensive for shipping companies, who many of whom didn't have had no clauses or bad clauses. They all tried to get out of their, or, or pass those costs on to um, to to the customers, and often that failed. Um, and of course, the knock-on of those things is, if people are too good at that, if too if if the wrong people have to bear these costs. They may go bust, and so actually you can end up with a worse problem uh, than you started with because people are being forced to do something they simply can't do, regardless of what the contract says. So, if no one, as with all these things, there's no one size fits all. Um, is going to be a big topic, but hopefully one that, that's um, limited. Brilliant, thank you, Peter, for that. Um, I want to uh, sort of go big picture now, um, and and we've had a number of questions. Uh, looking really on the positive side, I think uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom, um, but there's there's room for optimism, certainly, um, and I'd like to, to hear the panel's view on this. Um, we've had a couple of questions, um, so I'm going to try and tie these all together, really around um, uh, the process of digitalization um, across the um, across the continent and whether um, actually what we'll see is the, the will the crisis sort of accelerate these. I'm thinking particularly around sort of the banking sector, e-commerce as well, um, and then looking at sort of the tech sector as well. I don't know whether, um, Charles, you have, a, have an opinion on this. It's not something I've paid as much attention to as I should. Our banks analyst is absolutely obsessed by it, as you can imagine, um, and thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread. Um, and this is only going to get a boost from it. 
Um, and I was talking to a big telco, telco company on Sunday, actually, about about how good the whole prospects are for not just fintech, um, but but the telco business um, over time as a result of this. I think that is a structural boost, um, which this is going to provide. But I am not the right person to give 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 thoughts on this. I'm afraid. François, um, I don't know whether you can uh, have a position on this at all. Uh, yeah, I'm not a not an expert on on this sort of thing either. But I think the the broader, if you look more broadly than than just um, financial services and digital financial services, I think that um, as it came up earlier, that the the lower oil price is going to be a benefit to uh, countries um, aren't uh, oil that are oil importers. Um, and those are the diversified economies that um, have been doing well since uh, mid-2014 anyway. Um, so one of the benefits has to be, you have to hope that this time, um, this the, the commodity price shock is going to um, prompt governments and, and private sector to diversify those economies more rapidly than has been the case. It's absolutely necessary uh, to make them more resilient um, to commodity cycles and just to um, just to provide uh, healthier economic growth. I mean, the, the, those oil economies are very um, prone to corruption, and they're very—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it's either oil or construction, and then the the services sectors sort of grow up on the margins of those instead of being um, drivers of growth in their own right. So, diversification is something that you can hope uh, that you hope you're going to see more of um, going forward. Um, I don't know about yeah the fintech. Thing. It's it, it, it is something that you're going to see. Um, it's going to inevitably grow as more people have um, handheld internet devices. Uh, but I don't really have a view on that beyond that. No, thank you. I think um, uh, it war as you as you mentioned, it warrants sort of further investigation. It's something that here definitely at Invest Africa, you know, speaking to our members, we uh, we see a lot of this going now, uh, particularly in the banking sector. That's um, accelerated digitalization, and it's something that we're going to be looking to uh, examine in more detail for the rest of the year. Um, brilliant. Um, so I just think uh, we've got a couple more um, uh, questions, and I think one that uh, sort of uh, speaks more broadly, um, and perhaps we can get each of your views on this, and that is sort of which countries um, in Africa do you think are, are sort of best and worst positioned to cope with the with the crisis, um, um, Charles. Perhaps we can hear from you first. There's, there's uh, the, the in terms of the economic crisis rather than the health crisis. Um, so on the economic crisis, what we're suggesting is there ought to be better safe havens in in your um, Ivory Coast, um, potentially Ghana, uh, Kenya. Ethiopia, so oil importers benefiting on that side, and, and I totally accept the point made earlier about the roses um, and the, that being a big negative both for Ethiopia and Kenya actually. But nonetheless, the tea, the coffee, the gold being sold by Ghana, uh, being a supportive element for them, um, and Senegal has this big investment kind of backdrop of, of the oil and gas sector, which is going to should have driven growth to about nine percent or so this year anyway. So there's there's a number of decent um, tailwinds for those countries. They seem to be in the better place for now, this year. And from your perspective, sort of the, the worst affected uh, economy? I mean, it's got to be, you've got to say with the oil price, but you know, Trump, Trump could bend MBS's arm tomorrow night on a telephone call and we could see oil prices back up at $45, $50 in a week. Um, Maybe even less than a week. So I think it's incredibly difficult to forecast. But but as it stands, you'd have to be particularly concerned about all of the oil exporters. They've, a lot of them have ramped up debt, um, and none of them would have would have made oil at around these levels. Their central scenario. So it's just it's really tough. Um, Francois, I don't know whether you can uh, give your sort of predictions on um, uh, best and worst affected economies. Um, yeah, well, our view is the same. That that um, in these circumstances, the the more resilient economies are going to be the diversified uh, net energy importers. Uh, Kenya and Ethiopia, Tanzania is another one. 
uh, and then in the west, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and, and and Senegal. Um, so yeah, you, you've got to bet on diversification in a situation like this. Um, and then the worst affected are going to be the oil producers, but actually we're seeing the the, the worst affected um, economy as being South Africa's, even though it is diversified, but just from the consumer squeeze, you know, we, we were already, um, South African consumer was already under very big pressure um, from sluggish growth and uh, underperforming um, just a, a fiscal squeeze and then the SOEs dragging on the, the fiscus, which led to uh, tax increases the whole time. Um, and then this happened and now we're all locked inside for three weeks. It's going to be such a huge hit to the consumer economy. Um, that we think South Africa is going to be have one of the worst economic performances on the continent this year. Brilliant, thank you. And I think uh, you know, particularly relevant given the the credit rating. Um, I don't know whether you want to touch on that at all, um, Francois, from a South African point of view. Yeah. Well, the, the credit rating it almost came as a you know everyone had forgotten about Moody's um, in the in the tumult <laughs> of everything that was happening. Um, it had been expected more or less. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it had been expected, and I think um, our view was that it, that it was already priced into to yields and and the rand, uh, rand exchange rate to the dollar. I mean, um, so it it didn't have a huge effect, but obviously it didn't help. I mean, that's not going to um, at a time when you need when governments can need to borrow a lot, uh, then just having lost that rating, um, and you know, there might be more downgrades coming in the coming months, right? Um, is going to complicate the the task of of getting um, getting financing for all the, the emergency spending that we're going to need. Um, so yes, obviously just uh, just another kick in the teeth while you're down. Certainly, I think uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, perhaps not the best timing, um, but uh, it'd be interesting to um, watch that space. Um, Peter, um, from you, just to hear your thoughts on um, your sort of predictions on the best and worst sort of economies uh, that will be affected. I think I'd probably be broadly in agreement with uh, uh, what, what Francois Christmas said because um, uh, because you, you know it's it's the same it's the same issues. But I, I mean we mustn't forget that of course the oil issue was on the horizon to some degree before before this really kicked in um, and, and and is and is politically led and that's something that happens you know frequently anyway. It should be a reminder to, not that they need reminding but uh, the, the the need to diversify. Um, I, I, I think perhaps another thing to look at is, uh, you know, what industries are going to be doing well as opposed to which ones are suffering. I mean, you know, we always talk about extractives in, in conversations about Africa. But of course, the interesting thing is the newer businesses. So China in Ethiopia is investing in manufacturing. That's the big play there. And there's no reason why that should be affected at all um, unless, you know, unless it's such that the consumer demand really gets through the floor, um, but it won't be directly affected by the oil price. I think Ethiopia particularly will be very interesting because, A, it's a very resilient country. It's been literally through the wars. It's had you know a tough time, but grown phenomenally since. Um, and they are diversifying. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, I, I meant to chip in on the, on the conversation regarding, um, you know, t uh, the use of digitalization. You know, the, the, as there is a great increase and in, in continued increase in, in, in devices across the continent, that's obviously going to make it easier for people. And then you then you could look at countries like Rwanda, who are who are capitalising on that. They're you know trying to be a services-led economy. Again, you know they should, but they also have some you know some manufacturing. Um, we we've got a client, for example, that's that builds uh, smart that manufactures smartphones there, as well as in Durban. Um, you know, there's no reason why that shouldn't continue. Um, and I also think the other, the other really big thing is logistics. It's something that's been on everybody's every Africa-focused person's radar for for a long time. That there's just a lack of good supply chain. Um, and as these lockdowns happen, as um, uh, you know, as, as supply chains are interrupted, countries that don't have sea access are going to particularly be thinking even more carefully about their need to have strategic fuel reserves. Um, I mean, that's a problem Ethiopia's got already. They shouldn't be interrupted. But if you're, say, Zambian, Zimbabwean uh, or, or further in, um, you're going to be worried about your supply chain given the South African lockdown, because so much comes from there. 
um, is it's bound to be something that people think about. And there's you know there's not there's opportunities there, um, as well as short term challenges. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, I'd like to go back to um, a point made um, earlier in the conversation about. Um, looking at uh, borrower sovereign and multilaterals. I know we sort of, we always look at these things from a top-down approach, but if we flip the conversation around and look at sort of private sector companies, um, you know, we are uh, operating across Africa, we have a number of private sectors operating on the ground, um, who are all of whom are looking now for advice and support. Um, so my question really is, um, you know, where do, where do you see that support coming from? Do you see the multilaterals? Do you see the international institutions coming in to provide direct report um, with loans at a potentially a preferential condition, or do you think sort of at the moment across Africa, financial support will be limited uh, at the state level? Uh, Charles, if you kick things off. Well, hopefully, hopefully at every level. Um, I, I just keep on coming. But back to the issue that uh, this feels a little to me like a climate change debate. But the difference between this and the climate change debate is that if you get it wrong for three months or six months on climate change, you know, assuming that it's happening and some people still dispute that, um, it doesn't really matter. But if we get this wrong, if everyone isn't buying into the need to support every country, it's if you see countries saying we can't afford to do lockdown and millions of people get the virus in Nigeria, say, what are the odds that one of those people crosses a border and and manages to to spread the, the virus? And, and you know, most most of the virologists around would suggest that's pretty well inevitable. Um, and anyway, it's going to be hard to manage. Um, so it feels to me that this has to be a global response. We can't afford to to get it wrong. We can't afford for either the private or the public sector to be taking it easy. And I don't really see as an option long-term isolation. You can't rule it out. You can't rule out that some countries will say that's it. If you haven't had lockdown, if you're recording any cases, if you don't have good testing, we're just not going to let anyone in from your country for the next 18 months until a vaccine comes. That's possible. But I think that's very much a worst case scenario in terms of the public response. So I'd, I'd hope that you see public and private getting involved here. Francois, do you have any comments on this? Yes, one, one would hope to see a, a bit of a of, um, generosity on the part of, of public and private. Um, so the, the, obviously the, the restructuring talks with um, with uh, private creditors have already started and those are ongoing. So um, we'll see the results of that. Um, there are going to be tough negotiations, but um, you know if the if the alternative is a straight default. Um, then you know people tend to come to an agreement, um, and yes, then the, the multilaterals. You know, I'm, I'm inclined to think that they're going to want to um, maintain their importance in the in the global environment by 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 helping here. Um, but then there's also been a sort of turn to isolationism uh, in Europe. Um, in this crisis, that that could come to, come into play. So um, you know, I still tend to think that they will um, make some cheap money available to Africa, um, and then and negotiate with governments on on perhaps some conditionalities tied to that. Uh, yeah, so that's my sort of baseline now. And Peter, I don't know whether you have a sort of opinion on this from a legal perspective. You know, do you see are there precedents for this, and do you see um, that kind of support coming through? I think it has to because it's it's a bit like I mean with the, with the global financial crash, um, you know, in the end, th you, things had to be done to stop the whole the whole system collapsing, and you tend to see and and but, but again, you know, as I used the example of nine eleven before, you did see people pulling together there and not taking points that they might have taken in other disputes. So to give you an example, um, I was involved in a dispute to do with insurance coverage on. Uh, uh, one of the World Trade Center buildings, and you could see the approach that people took was different to one they might have taken in a purely, you know, uh, commercial circumstances um, weeks before that. Uh, they realized that this was a different thing, they had to take a different approach. And I think right now, people, you know, because literally everybody is in it together, um, that's, one would hope that we will see people be sensible. If they're not, 
Um, the other thing to remember is that a number of governments are talking about making uh, insolvency more difficult in the short term. And many, many African uh, projects are structured through offshore vehicles. If the offshore vehicles follow that uh, lead, let's say, for example, the UK makes um, it more difficult to have an, to, to, to force a company into insolvency. If the offshores follow that, um, then that will obviously change the game as well. If they, even if they don't, obviously one has to say, well, where's it all going if, if this thing falls to bits? Because um, it's one thing in sort of regular times to um, say, well, company X is, is not doing well. Um, although rescue, you know, in insolvency situations, the focus these days is much more on rescue, on restructuring, on trying to preserve value. Because if you, you know, when people default, if you pull the plug completely, um, you end up with 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 a fraction of the value you had that day because everything's sold at far sale prices. You know, you, you you sometimes that's what you have to do. That's what happens all the time. When or you sell to vulture funds, and that's what they do. Um, but but if if it goes too far, the whole thing falls apart. And you know that's what generated the OA crash was, of course, um, you know the, the the cycle of repossessions causing property prices to drop, which meant other people were getting repossessed or other land wasn't worth as much and, and it creating a vicious circle it's very important to stop that and i think people will be very conscious of that um and uh it, you know that started in the states so people weren't weren't as conscious of it thought it was a regional issue um this is at least is a global issue before it's become a financial issue if you will brilliant thank you for that um we've got one more minute so i want to well at least try and end on a positive note um I read yesterday um, Baj, uh, Bajar Handa, the president of the Islamic Development Bank, wrote an op-ed in, um, in the Africa Report uh, talking about the opportunities the pandemic might, might indeed offer to sort of um, help change the way we look at um, investment, trade and development, um, you know, looking with more of a focus really on sustainability and inclusive growth. Um, I don't know whether uh, sort of you could each, as a sort of closing remark, give sort of one positive thing, um, if any, indeed, um, that you think um, can be taken away from uh, from our conversation today. Uh, perhaps we'll start with you, uh, Francois. Mm, earlier, as a, as a outcome that I'd like to see um, a sort of an economic policy outcome and a, a, a focus for the private sector in undiversified economies. And then I think, um, yes, the, the, the fact that we are to a degree all in this together is going to mean that uh, some measures uh, to help um, poorer people um, that are, are now going to start being implemented in the crisis um, are going to stay in place and, and um, you know, support uh, poorer people in African countries, you know, where governments can afford it. Um, and then, you know, improve uh, health outcomes and education outcomes for, for everyone's benefit. Um, so that's what I hope to see. Yeah. Uh, Peter, a positive from you. Yeah, I think, um, I, I hope and I think that it's going to make it more likely that people uh, uh, take more pragmatic views about debt and about um, force majeure. Um, I think they have to, and um, hopefully that will see things, perhaps a slightly longer term approach, particularly in African investment, um, in the sense of as long as that, as long as everybody knows that that is the real reason and uh, not just, uh, as, as we've already seen for a, in a couple of our cases where people use it as an excuse for something that was a problem before. But optimistic, I, but I am, I, I think there is always something to be gained from a crisis. And uh, um, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, this does, A, a it shows people new ways of doing things, um, opens new, new opportunities for business that are positive, and that the people who have suffered um, and suffering now uh, with their businesses, that, that sort of those, those who can help them, do so rather than just look at their own bottom lines and their shareholders. And Charles, to finish off. Um, I think what's great news from this is just how incredibly indebted the West is going to be after this crisis. Um, and the reason that's good news is because if you get a country with as much debt as Japan at 250% of GDP or so, they cannot afford interest rates much above 1%. Maybe two, but three would completely destroy that economy. So it's just, it becomes inconceivable 
that Japan can have high interest rates beyond 1 or 2%. And the West, the UK, the US, uh, Western Europe are all heading towards that Japanese scenario and much, much faster as a result of this virus. So what does that tell us? It tells us that 10-year bond yields in the States can never go back up to 4%, probably not to 3 Um And so around 1% to 2 becomes you know, the higher end of what you'd expect. Now, why is that important? Because, as we all know, the infrastructure requirement in Africa is vast. Um, the borrowing will be cheaper than ever to do that. And therefore, you'd hope faster, faster progression on that front um, at cheaper rates as a result of this crisis on a three-year view, maybe five-year. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think that's a, a good um, positive point to end on. Um, so I'd just like to thank uh, the three of you, Francois, Charles and uh, Peter, for all your uh, support here and your insights. I think um, we can all agree it's uh, um fascinating time to be living through um, and uh, certainly uh, we will be uh, as Invest Africa trying to keep our members updated as much as possible um, on the sort of out, um, outbreak and the effects on Africa. Do look out on our um, Invest Africa Insights page for any sort of upcoming webinars, podcasts or indeed um, uh, sort of thought pieces from members around this topic. Um, once again, thank you so much to our speakers um, and hope you have a lovely rest of the week. Thank you very much, gentlemen.